we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. If everybody is a racist, then nobody is safe in the operating room. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse, always a beat ahead. Medicine is a science has advanced over the years to treat and cure more and more complex conditions. Medicine as a profession has advanced to include all races and males, females. My father went to an all-black college and medical school. I went to a white college and medical school. When my parents moved from Tuskegee, Alabama to San Diego after the war, World War II, diversity and inclusion was not on their mind. My mother wanted to move to a town with good weather. She wrote Chambers of Commerce west of the Mississippi and asked if the town needed a doctor. Well, San Diego answered. My mother got her good weather, and my father had such a successful practice of all races that in a mainly white Republican town, the city council adjourned on the day his death was announced. In my younger days, gender was a bigger problem than race, although it's now illegal. I was asked about my boyfriends and if I planned to marry when I was in medical school. In the interviewers, and of course by association, the school's view, a romantically involved female would waste a space for a male student. Now, over 50% of medical students are females, some married, some mothers. So how did we go from an organic cultural shift to include all qualified persons in the medical profession to turning medical schools into socialist indoctrination factories. We've gone from equal opportunity to equal outcomes. We've regressed from taking it as normal that doctors like my father had patients of all colors and nobody thought twice about it. Now the academicians and mainstream medical associations write articles that erroneously conclude that minority patients are better off by having a doctor with the same skin color. This is sick. Of course, this only works for patients of color. If a white patient would ask for a white doctor, he would be a racist. This obsession with race is an excuse to fundamentally transform education with the ultimate goal of transforming America. Many of us care about providing excellent medical care to patients more than political agendas. My guest today has taken his fight against indoctrination to the streets, so to speak. First, he went directly to the top of the American College of Surgeons and then to the Wall Street Journal. My guest, Dr. Rick Bosshart, is a board-certified plastic surgeon in private practice in Florida. He's been there for over 33 years. 
He graduated from University of Miami Medical School and completed his general surgery training in the U.S. Naval Hospital in Oakland, California. After serving as a surgeon in the U.S. Naval Hospital in Okinawa, Dr. Bosshart returned to Miami to train in plastic surgery. He wrote a weekly medical column entitled House Calls for the Orlandor, Orlandor, can I talk, Orlando Sentinel for over 25 years and was a contributing writer to Lake Healthy Living magazine for over 10 years. He is a member of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons and a fellow in the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to the show, Dr. Boshart. Well, thank you, Marilyn. I'm delighted to be here. After that opening, especially the introduction, I think I should quit while I'm ahead and just say goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Don't you dare. (laughs) Well, I am truly delighted to uh, be able to be here with you. Uh, This has taken a while to, I guess, for us to put this together. But now that I'm here, uh, where do we begin? Well, I'm going to ask you a really basic kind of wheel of fortune question. What made you want to be a surgeon? That's an easy one. I I can answer that one quickly. I went to medical school to be a family practitioner. I wanted to be Marcus Welby, MD, and do everything. But as I entered all my clinical rotations in my third year medical school, I was crossing each one off as one that I just did not have any interest in. And toward the end of the third year, I was getting a little bit concerned because I thought maybe I'd wasted my time. It just so happened that my third, excuse me, my last rotation of the third year uh, was on surgery. And um, we took a call with the surgical team on call for trauma and emergencies. And of course, we're all tired. We're all studying. Uh, Most of the students did not want to be surgeons. And so there was all this... uh, this uh, you go, no, you go, uh, when it was time to get up in the middle of the night and go to the operating room. And one night I was the one selected to go and I was sitting at, for an unusual situation for me, I had a ringside seat assisting the chief surgical resident exploring a stab wound in the thigh. And while sitting there, I had this epiphany, that's the best description I can give to it, where I realized that it all came together, all the anatomy that we studied, the actual hands-on of uh, going into the thigh to find out where the bleeding blood vessel was, applying the anatomy, uh, very hands-on. The OR was humming along with everyone doing their job. And here it was, the middle of the night, and I was having a blast. And from that point on, I had no doubt that surgery was the way I wanted to go. Well, that's fantastic. All the way back in medical school, had you thought about whether you go into private practice or what you do with your, I'll assume, skills and talents after you uh, completed your training? Well, I'm sure somewhat like you and most students, I was just trying to survive. So I wasn't planning much more ahead than the next rotation and the one after that. But once I decided on surgery in the third year, the fourth year was pretty much doing a lot of surgical subspecialties in preparation for internship. And I knew I had Navy time ahead of me. I had a four-year obligation for my Navy scholarship. So my my, uh, path was pretty much set for at least the four years after medical school, in addition to whatever residency time I spent. 
Okay, got it. Well, I have to say one of my best rotations in medical school was at Letterman Army Hospital. It no longer exists. It was built for the Vietnam War. It was right out there on the Presidio. It was positively gorgeous. You could see the Golden Gate Bridge from the playrooms. And I took my pediatric rotation there because I didn't want to do it at UC Hospital because all they had were these weird diseases since you know, people from all over came with these odd things that I thought you'd never see in real life. And at Letterman, it was great because there were all sorts of normal kind of patients. And pay, and then we got really odd things that came down from Alaska and over from Hawaii because it was a big tertiary care thing. And I, I tell this long story because one day, the pediatricians, we you went to the deliveries of babies, and one day a set of twins were born, and that was when they put race on birth certificates. And the wife was of Korean origin, and the husband was black, and one little baby came out looking exactly like the father, one little baby came out looking exactly like the mother. And the nurse asked Dr. Doan, what race should I put on here? And Dr. Doan just looked at her and said, human. <laughs> so here we are. Hopefully nobody got in trouble over that. <laughs> but here we are. And we're beginning talking about humanity. We're all humans. Patients are all humans. Doctors are all humans. Yet there's something bizarre going on. And you have a story to tell. So I just want you to start off saying how you even, what happened to you and how you got involved in this fight. Really, I look at it for humanity, for individual humanity, instead of these race baiting fools that are out there trying to take over medicine? Well, um, I really find myself surprised to, to be where I am today, Marilyn. I have never been a card-carrying political activist. I've never walked a picket line. I've always just done the best I could as a surgeon to take care of my patients. And then what time I had left was devoted to family. I also did spend some time because I felt it was important to give back in the local medical community. I was the president of the Lake County Medical Society and chief of surgery at my hospital. And uh, one of my goals when I decided to become a surgeon was to achieve a fellowship in the American College of Surgeon. I saw these doctors that had FACS after their MD. I found out that it stood for fellow American College of Surgeons. And as I learned more about the ACS, um, I realized that this was a, a very nice, let's say it was a validation of your, your education and training and, and competence as a surgeon, because it wasn't just a matter of paying dues and you were a member. You had to be recommended by other fellows. You had to have been in practice for a while and have a clean, you know, a fairly clean uh, practice record in so far as, as your results and things like that. And I did achieve that. I became a fellow in, uh, I think it was 1991. 
And I've always very proudly carried that. And unfortunately, because I chose to subspecialize in plastic surgery, I became much more involved in my specialty. And other than being a fellow of the ACS, I never really was terribly involved with the, the college itself. Uh, race has never been anything that's been a factor in my life. In fact, sometimes I think, oh my gosh, how did it become such a, an overwhelming elephant in the room? Uh, but what happened was this, I, I was reading the bulletin of the ACS. They publish a, a, like a, a small magazine bulletin. And there was a text of a lecture by a, an invited pediatrician giving a name lecture. And the lecture was titled uh, Diversity, Inclusion and Excellence, a little bit of a reverse of the normal DEI. And I sat down and read through the entire text of her Speech. And although excellence was in the title, it was not mentioned a single time in the speech itself. And that concerned me. And so I wrote a, com a comment uh, that was published online in the ACS. Uh, I was one of four surgeons who commented, and the others commented two or three lines. My comment went on for several paragraphs. And I expressed concerns about this failure to continue to place excellence at the top of the tier and give you more priority to things like diversity, inclusion, and whatnot. And so there it went. And I, I kind of peripherally followed things for a bit. And that was in 2019, um, uh, 2018, excuse me. In 2019, uh, I uh, wrote a letter to the um, president, then elected president of the ACS, and it was a long letter, and I expressed a lot of concerns about what was going on. Uh, the George Floyd uh, murder had, you know, be become front and center. Um, I'm going to get my years maybe a little mixed up because of all the COVID thing. It may have been 2020 when George Floyd was, uh, was killed. And in the aftermath of that, everyone seemed to be scrambling to deal with what was then claimed to be some kind of a huge racial crisis in the USA. And the ACS convened a task force on racism and their recommendations came out in November of 2020. And they included a number of things that uh, troubled me. Over the course of the year, I had uh, gotten a, almost like a graduate education on things I'd never even heard of before, critical race theory being one of them. And they were proposing all these initiatives and changes in the college that were straight out of the playbook for critical race theory. Things like adding anti-racism to the values of the college, uh, initiating training in microaggression, um, in, implicit uh, bias training, um, things of that sort. The ACS um, hosted a retreat for the leaders of all the surgical societies in early I think it was in June uh, of 2021. And the uh, keynote speaker for that was Ibram Kendi, who, uh, as most people know, I'm sure you do, authored a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And his entire um, focus is on ferreting out racism in all of American society and institutions and government and, and businesses. Uh, and um, everything is about race. Everything that relates to the history of this country is about race. It's about the, the white supremacy over the uh, oppressed blacks. 
Um, and we have to radically change society in order to correct these wrongs. And one of his statements that I remember very clearly was that the answer to uh, racial discrimination is reverse discrimination, which seems to me really not to be the best answer. So the college was doing all these things, inviting kindy, uh, initiating all these new things. They added a diversity pillar to the other five pillars of the ACS, which included things like um, education and um, advocacy and so forth. Um, and I was bothered by the fact that they were doing this, number one. Number two, a letter that I'd written to the president that expressed my concerns went completely unacknowledged and unanswered. And I thought, well, I'm not getting any traction from within the ACS. I may have to go outside the ACS. So, so well, let me, let me stop you right there now that we're getting down to the meat of this, where I have to take a little break and we'll get right into... Uh, oh. I know the story. That's why I had you on the show. And um, I, I get sick almost even thinking about it. So let, let me take my little break and thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. We've got our free apps on Apple, Android, and Alexa. And you can hear Pulse every weekday at 5 with an encore presentation at 10 p.m. Eastern. And it's on iHeartRadio at 8 a.m. the next morning. All shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours, and they're on lots of the networks, Apple and Spotify, Pandora, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeart. So make it easy. Just bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. The lineup gives a different person every day of the week, Mondays with me, Marilyn Singleton, Tuesdays with concerned doctors, Dr. Jordan Vaughn and Dr. Stuart Tankersley, Wednesdays with Dr. Peter McCulloch and Malcolm Out Loud, Thursdays with Dr. Peter Bregan and Ginger Ross Bregan, and Fridays with our newest addition, Nurse Jody O'Malley. It's really a nice lineup. And we have a new feature. If you have any questions, just send them in at americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. And we will try to get you an answer as soon as we can. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCauley Report. Make sure you go to our website and check the banner bars. The banner bars to the sponsors, when you click on them, automatically give you a discount on products. I like especially Healthy Cell REM Sleep Supplement for a great night's sleep. I took it last night. No wonder I feel so good today. Check out Healthy Cell and go to our website, Banner Bar, to get a discount off your first purchase. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company Healthy Cell created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. 
It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com where we're healing America one person at a time. So back to Dr. Bossart and his story. So he's had this meeting where it's supposed to be about excellence. Excellence is never mentioned. A speaker who talks about anti-racism, basically all white people are the oppressors and all black people are the oppressed. Take it away, Dr. Bossard. Thank you. I will try not to take up the entire time with my story because I'd love to hear some questions. So let me see if I can get through this fairly quickly. Oh, no, you, you, you go ahead, because, um, you know, people will send in the questions later. So uh, I think it's important for people to know what happened and the timeline. Okay, so I did, I got no answer by addressing the leadership, my concerns, and I decided to post on the uh, forums, the ACS has an online forum for physicians in which they can post questions on various topics. There are forums that are intended for general surgery, for women in surgery, for, for orthopedics and so forth. And the biggest one, of course, is general surgery. So I, I posted on that one. And what I said was, I was very concerned about the direction of the college. If the college continued to, to promote uh, DEI and critical race theory over excellence in surgery, I didn't think that it could continue to be a fellow in good conscience. And I was considering giving up my fellowship. And I posted this, and this led to a comment thread that eventually amounted to almost 1,000 comments. It literally broke the system. It slowed down the online forum so badly they had to actually carry the, the thread over to a different uh, location. Um, but there was a lot of, a uh, lot of, of course, interest in this and, and comments, both pro and con. Two thirds of them were definitely in favor of my position that the ACS should not be toying with critical race theory. And eventually the, uh, the thread ran its normal course and, and I kind of backed away from it. Next thing I know, the uh, general secretary reaches out to me and said that they'd like to have me on a Zoom call. And uh, the Zoom call would include the general secretary, one of the board of regents, um, and their new clinical director of diversity, a physician that was hired for this new position in the college. And I said, great, I'd love to do that. And I asked if I could bring someone with me on the Zoom call. And I brought on a black female Jamaican general surgeon colleague here in town who's very articulate and was, was very prominent on that comment thread. And uh, so we met and had a very good hour-long Zoom call where we each presented our particular 
concerns and positions, and they tried to indicate what they were trying to accomplish. I don't think we came to any agreement, but it was a very civil and I thought a very good conversation. And I was wondering where it was going to lead. The next thing I know, the ACS changes the the rules and regulations on the forums and says that they're not going to permit any um, posts on non-clinical issues on the clinical forums. And DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and critical race theory were considered to be non-clinical and therefore could not be posted on those. And I objected and a number of other surgeons objected. And all of our comments objecting were taken down. They were deleted by the general secretary. They weren't allowed to be to be put up. Um, the college says that, you know, race is a big issue in the ACS, that, it, that the ACS is structurally racist, that surgery is racist, and this has a, a adverse impact on surgical outcomes, and yet they claim it's a non-clinical issue. So I wasn't very happy about that. And I made a couple of comments on the, the clinical forums about this concern. Next thing I know, I'm, I can't get on anymore. I, I tried to open up the forums to get on to, to look what was, what was being said and to post a comment. I couldn't get on. After a couple of weeks, I said, this, is, this is, cannot be just a glitch in the system. There's something going on. And when I inquired, I found that I had been permanently banned from access to the clinical forums. That ban included, I have no access to the membership directory of the ACS, and I can't even access my private messages. So the reason given for my ban was that I was continuously using disrespectful language and posting non-clinical material on clinical posts or clinical forums. So I asked them, I said, can you please give me examples of my disrespectful language? I've asked easily a dozen times. I've never received a single example of disrespectful commentary that I had made. Um, and I also asked them, how can you be saying that I posted non-clinical material when everything I was talking about relates to the you know, disparities in surgical care? I appealed to the Board of Regents, received a response from the executive director who said that they had reviewed my situation and they were upholding the permanent ban. And that was that. And I kept asking, I said, do I have any recourse to be shown where I erred, where I was disrespectful or where I was doing something that deserved a permanent ban? I received no answer to that. And as a result, I said, well, I, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm completely muzzled. I can't say a thing in the ACS any longer. So the only way I'm gonna deal with this is either to quit, which for me was not an option, uh, or to go public. And I reached out to an organization called Do No Harm. And they put me in touch with one of the writers and with uh, his assistance, I put together an opinion piece that was accepted to the Wall Street Journal. It was titled Critical Race Theory is Bad Medicine. And it basically enumerated my concerns and it publicized the fact that I have a, a fellow of 30 some years, uh, good standing in the ACS have been completely muzzled and canceled by the leadership because I was objecting to what they were doing, which I think is a very illiberal stance for a professional medical society. Um, and that's where things stand. Uh, the, the journal piece came out on September 14. Uh, I noticed that it received uh, almost 800 comments before they closed the comment section down. And uh, as a result, I have received an invitation to um, 
to uh, speak with Tucker Carlson on Fox uh, News uh, to discuss the opinion piece. And that's where things stand right now. I'm still unable to access anything in the ACS. Um, and uh, they say I have all my privileges except, except for the most important ones, which are access and, and you know, involvement. Well, this is really sad because we thought this kind of uh, censoring and canceling took place on Twitter and Facebook. And you think, okay, fine. I can't talk to nameless, faceless people that I don't even know. When you talk about a surgical society, and uh, it's the same with my anesthesia society, they have a blog. That's where you learn little tricks of the trade and are able to communicate things. Oh, I had a patient with red hair. I guess it's true that redheads take less anesthesia. You know, all these kinds of things that you might not necessarily see in a journal. And to block someone from that, that goes beyond just saying, well, we don't want to discuss race, even though we're the ones who brought it up and are shoving it down people's throats. This is this is so wrong. And what it's depriving you of is so wrong. The ability to communicate with your fellow surgeons. Uh, did, if it hadn't I, happened to me, Marilyn, I would not have believed that would happen. And I've found out others have been canceled like myself. Of course, I can't reach them because I don't know who they are, but I've heard from fellows in the society that, that, that in the college that uh, others have been canceled in addition to, to me. But course uh, none of us can connect with each other because we don't know who we are well that's on purpose my dear and you know it that after you cancel somebody that's part of this whole cancel thing is to make sure that like-minded people don't get a chance to compare notes as it were and they don't want enough people to rise be able to rise up and say you are wrong this, you know, we're not, and you can't say anymore, they've made it so crazy that you can't say, I'm not a racist. It, it, it's like that famous radio interview of a black guy where the interviewer obviously didn't do her homework and said to him, well, you only have that opinion because of your white privilege. And he had to say, excuse me, I'm black, you know, but it didn't matter. <laughs> he, he, you well, know. The odd thing is if you have that opinion and you're black, then you're not considered black anymore. You're kind of a, a traitor to your race, so to speak, because you're not part, you know, parroting the party line, if you will. Well, that's right. No, it's now it's like black, white privilege. It, so it's, it's gotten totally crazy. And you think that medicine could be exempt given all that's at stake, that we've got patients who were at stake. When I trained, my goodness, and, and I started off in surgery, it was, a, you know, again, a bigger deal to be a woman than to be black. And there were black attendings, there's black neurosurgery attending neurosurgery. That's like the cream of the crop, the top of the line. And uh, so where, where did these black people come from all the way back in the 1970s before they had DEI and Ibram Kendi telling them that they were oppressed? What they were were hard workers who did well in medical school and did well in their residency and got great jobs at the University of California, San Francisco. 
So I, I get so upset about this, having gone through years going from segregated things to integrated things and to have this turn back around where it's getting segregated again. And the idea that um, Black people should have the opportunity, as they're calling it, to request a Black doctor because that's going to give them better medical care, to me is absurd. What I want is the guy who has the best skills. I don't care what color his skin is. So what do you think all this race nonsense is going to do to the quality of medical care? What's the adverse effect on patients? Well, the one thing that I see is that if they really truly are trying to make the the surgical area, the house of surgery, if you will, to mirror the society in general, then we're going to have to eliminate some Asian surgeons. We're going to have to increase the black surgeons and decrease the white surgeons. And of course, nowadays, the race thing is a little bit tricky because a lot of people are very mixed. And, you know, to equate, you know, there's, there's no more homogeneity among white surgeons than there is among black surgeons. Um, but if they're going to be doing, you know, quotas, then the only way you, you're going to meet quotas is by reducing standards. Uh, if you don't have enough black surgeons to, to make up that 12 or 13% that you need, then you're only going to find them by lowering the standards. Uh, and, and, you know, it's just, Marilyn, I guess I'm just so tired of talking about race. I thought we'd gotten beyond that, you know? Uh, it, it kind of crept up on us, I think, a little bit. And all of a sudden, it's front and center, and everything is now racial. Um, the, the other thing is the divisiveness. If you, if you take a professional organization like the ACS, and you start saying that, you know, black surgeons have better outcomes with black patients and white surgeons, you know, when, when you go to the ER you know, as a white surgeon and you see a, a black patient, uh, which if you're in an inner city hospital, for example, is probably going to be the majority of the patients that you see. Um, you're going to be met with this tremendous distrust thing. You know, is this particular white doctor and, you know, biased or racist against me? And am I going to get the best care? I can't imagine anything more destructive to the doctor patient relationship than that. Uh, so in addition to, to potentially lowering standards, you're going to erode uh, something which is fundamental to medicine, which is the the obligation responsibility of a physician that practices Hippocratic medicine to treat every patient in front of them to the best of their ability. And if patients don't trust that, then I think that there's a huge problem there and it's going to affect, it can't help but impact medical care. Uh, a colleague of mine said something I found was very interesting. He said, you cannot mix medicine and politics without harming medicine. And I thought about that, said that is absolutely true. You know, when I walk into a, a emergency room cubicle and uh, I don't care if the guy is a drug dealer, if he's a CEO of a major corporation, if he's a single black, if she's a single black mother uh, or someone with uh, some kind of disability, I'm going to give that individual the best care that I can regardless. And to say that I'm somehow not going to do that is not is beyond insulting. It's it just it's a terrible thing to say to, to a professional who's devoted their life to taking care of people. 
You know, it it is sad and it is insulting because each patient is an individual. So not only is it an insult to the doctor, it's an insult to the patient. Oh, he's black. So what is that supposed to embody? Is that supposed to say he's poor? Is that supposed to say he's undereducated? What, what does it mean to be black? That's what's so silly. I had a book that I grew up with called A Pictorial History of the Negro in America. It was written by Langston Hughes and um, autographed. And um, the book begins, the Negro in America is just like anyone else. They are teachers, doctors, lawyers, scientists. And the book goes on. And, and there's history. And of course, it talks about slavery. We, you know, this in no way makes slavery go away. But it was talking about how Black folks had integrated into society. And this book was written in the late 50s. And we're do, starting to really do well in society. And mind you, it was written before the Civil Rights Act that people were just organically improving their lot and the whole era of slavery, racism, bit by bit was getting eroded and by people getting along with each other, meeting other people that maybe they hadn't met before. When we come back on that sour note, um, we're going to talk about these medical societies because the AMA certainly had a racist past, but a whole lot of things, again, over time have improved. And what these societies are doing and what should their role be in medicine? So... I know my role, here it is, it's starting to be fall and winter and the CDC and the public health service, if we are to believe what they say, they say that we're gonna be hit with a lot of viruses this season. And there's no reason to think we won't. We're always hit with a lot of viruses in the winter and people are inside, the air is drier. And so what I've been taking really since the start of COVID, I've been taking nasal iodine and I had made it my own. But in the meantime, an American company made in America has made Cofix RX, which is a mixture, the just the right amount of povidone iodine and xylitol and saline. And you squirt it up your nose a couple times a day. And it kills a lot of the virus and bacteria. Nothing's going to kill everything, but it kills a lot. And just remember, volume matters. And um, most of these viruses come up through the nose. So if we can kind of catch them early before they get down to our lungs, it'll be a good thing and help keep us healthy during the long winter. And um that's what I'm doing, and I hope you all will do it. So look for Cofix RX, and we've got a little um, button for it, little icon for it on our web page, and just click it on and read about it. And I've been very pleased. I've given it to my husband, who uh, 
trust that that dose is the proper one and not me sitting over the sink mixing it together. So um, anyway, that's that's my plug for trying to keep everybody not getting sick this winter. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a pulvinone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at CofixRx.com. Back to these medical surgical societies who have decided to jump on the political bandwagon and which doesn't seem in reality to have much to do with patient care other than making both sides of the picture the patient and the doctor very nervous about their encounter what do you think these societies should be doing i mean Yes, race is something that enters into our lives, but what degree should they even be talking about it? And where should it be on the hierarchy of what these societies are for? Well, the ACS, as you know, is is the premier surgical society representing pretty much all surgical specialties. And they're... um, motto or their, I guess would be their, yeah, their motto was to be to serve all with skill and fidelity. Uh, They have changed that recently to a more wordy one that upholds standards of care or some such thing. Uh, But the whole idea behind it is to encourage and help surgeons to attain excellence in patient care and to, you know, turn that around to providing the best patient care possible. What's happening is it's diluting the mission by taking on all these social justice issues and and expanding on them, and I believe creating divisiveness uh, in the ACS. I don't think I was the first person to protest this because I've had others tell me that they did the same. Um, and um, as a result, I think what's happening is it's turning in itself from a professional surgical society uh, dedicated to you know furthering the the capabilities and the um, care of the surgical patient and becoming just another political action group that's out there trying to promote social justice and uh, um, things that really don't have anything directly to do with surgery itself, if if I'm saying this correctly. It it just seems to be unnecessary to do this. Uh, And I think the push is coming because they feel like if they don't do that, they're going to reap the whirlwind, so to speak, from all of the people out there that are ready to jump on them for being racist and for being uninvolved. Um, uh, The fact that they're willing to to flat out say, it's in writing, it's on the website, 
that they believe the ACS is structurally racist, and so is surgery itself. I mean, when you say things like that, you darn well better have evidence to support that. And I have asked for that repeatedly and never seen any evidence that, that suggests that those claims are true. And if we're going to be doctors and practice evidence-based medicine, I think we have an obligation to have some objective basis for the claims that we make. There are so many areas of surgery that need to be attended to from trauma to cancer care to um, improving technology and so forth, uh, electronic health records, for, for instance, things that, that really pertain to, to the care of the patient. And those things are being pushed aside in the tremendous uh, uh, pressure to advance social narratives and social ideologies. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be the best thing to do. And I really, truly do not want to see the ACS decline. I don't want to see it go down. I'm not trying to embarrass it. Uh, I've been a proud member for most of my career. And I just think that it needs to take a long, hard look at where it's going. And I would hope that if it does that, if it does that, that it would perhaps take a step back from these, these things that it's getting involved with. Uh, they could start by reinstituting my privileges, for example. I'm going to plug in for that. So I'd like to be able to be, you know, a participating member. Well, one of the things that strikes me is some of this stuff is coming too late. And I don't mean too late on a time continuum of life, but too late in the life of the student that they want to ultimately have become a surgeon, assuming they want to become a surgeon, which of course is one of the factors that's always left out in these social justice, social engineering things is it's kind of like when they say, oh, nurse practitioners can take the place of primary care physicians in rural areas. Well, guess what? More nurse practitioners go to the city just like the doctors do. It, it, you know, it's like they say these things and they say, oh, well, Black doctors will go practice in the Black community. Black doctors from my medical school didn't go practice in the Black community. They practiced wherever they wanted to practice. So one, so there's that false narrative that they can engineer having these uh, doctors of color go to their respective corners in society. And two, to me, it seems they need to be spending their time if they want to say something on this forum is to tell people to go mentor a 10-year-old, get somebody when they're young. And so they can see what they can achieve. My favorite person who's now deceased, God rest his soul, is Reginald Lewis, who wrote a book, an autobiography called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? And he learned in high school when he was a waiter at a fancy country club in Baltimore when he overheard these guys talking about stocks and bonds. He says, okay. That's what I want to do. So they, the surgeon should be telling people, go out and expose yourself. And I don't mean like Anthony Weiner or Hunter Biden, but expose these kids to something that they may have never seen. And I imagine you would do that given the opportunity, given a list of students who have shown some interest or go to a grammar school or junior high. 
I mean, this is what they ought to be doing. I agree completely. I absolutely agree. You know, if, if, we, if we're going to start, we have to start with the kids, even in secondary school. And that's, that's fine. But, and, the, and maybe those programs are being pursued, but think how much more they could be pursued if we weren't diverting our attention to things like, you know, teaching about implicit bias and microaggression uh, and uh, promoting anti-racist values and, and things like that, that just rankle people. I mean, it just really rubs them the wrong way in so many places. Um, a little background, uh, Marilyn, I, I grew up in a, a bicultural Christian home. My mother was a Brazilian, uh, born and raised in Rio de Janeiro. My father was American, born and raised in Minnesota. And um, I was not ever raised to consider race to be an issue. I mean, it was something that was just not an issue in our home. Uh, my sister was part of a multinational organization in college, and we had students from every corner of the world coming through our house constantly when she was in school. Uh, my mother, when she moved to Florida, was during segregation in Florida, and she was shocked that there were white and black restrooms and white and black water fountains. And my mom made it a point to always use the black ones. She refused to use the white water fountains and she refused to use the white bathrooms. That was just her nature. And that's how we were raised. And for me to have to be dealing with this issue and, and obsessing and focusing and, and arguing and discussing with people um, is it just seems to me such an incredible waste of our time nowadays when there's so many more important things to be taken care of. Well, this is so true. And, and, and we need to look at education and the economy and pulling people again at an early age into the idea that they too can be part of the economy, even if their parents weren't in the best of circumstances. Look at someone like Ben Carson, who had a single mother, but she pushed with education and look what he became. Uh, we crossed paths at Hopkins and here he came to Hopkins and was the head of the pediatric neurosurgery, did these amazingly skilled operations. I really don't think those Siamese twins or conjoined twins from Germany, when the parents came over to get them separated, were thinking, hmm, Dr. Carson is black. I don't think we'll let our twins be separated by him. I mean, come on. This is, this is what it, it, it really, it makes my stomach turn. I mean, because nobody ever thought of him one way or the other. He was a gifted neurosurgeon, period. Absolutely. Oh, and, you know, and I'm sure you could help train gifted surgeons of all colors. And I just think you can't force somebody to be something they don't want to be. You can't force them to go into neighborhoods that they don't want to work. I grew up in a segregated neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, even in California, there was segregation uh, back in the late forties, fifties. And my goal growing up, I'll honestly speak, it was, well, I don't want to live in a black neighborhood when I grow up. 
it's like as things became integrated, I thought, I want to be a part of integration. I don't want to just sit in some corner and live there just because I have to. And uh, and my parents were on board. They didn't think, well, oh, you're um, rejecting your Blackness or something. No, it was embracing that we could all live together and that we aren't divided and some people choose to live in a neighborhood with their own kind and others choose to live in whatever neighborhood had the house that they liked or the geography that they liked. And that's how it ought to be in medicine and in these societies and not shoving this divisive racism down our throats. And there are racists. We know that, but not you and me. me. Yes, no matter what you do, there are jerks of every skin color. And there are jerks in every medical specialty. And one of the things that always struck me, and I've even said this to patients and, and, you know, having nothing to do with race when they say, oh, Dr. So-and-so is a little sharp with me today or whatever. And I said, you know, well, maybe the patient before he saw you died or had a terrible diagnosis and, you know, he just hadn't pulled himself back together yet. Patients understand that. Now, if you look at that through a racial lens, when Dr. So-and-so was a little short, they say, oh, die, he's a racist. He was short with me because I'm black. No, he was short with everybody because he'd had a bad day. You know, it's, and this is the problem. You know, psychologists say, and when they do marriage counseling, when they want people to try to look at a situation as a whole, they say, she threw a pebble, but you saw a rock. And this is what they're trying to do to us with race. And I, I don't know. What are, what are you going to do in our last couple of minutes? I mean, is it going to change your practice? Are you suddenly going to be nice to Black people? Well, what really bothers me is I never even thought about that until now. And now I can't stop thinking about it, Marilyn. Every time a patient walks in uh, who is Hispanic or black or something other than white, I think, okay, what are they thinking about me? And, and do I have to change what I do and how I do it in order to, to uh, meet some expectation that I'm not really all that sure what it is? Um, I love C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite writers, um, and I'm going to paraphrase something he said that I think applies here, and that is that the two mistakes we can make about race are one, to deny it, and the other is to obsess about it. And I think that the, the balance is somewhere between the two where we recognize that there are people of different races. At the same time, we realize that that's probably one of the least important characteristics of anybody and to make that the, the color of someone's skin, to make that such a, a predominant uh, feature uh, that, you know, we can't change. No one can change the color of their skin, no matter how hard Michael Jackson tried, he was still black. Uh, but it's, it's, you know, trying to treat people as, as human beings that you said earlier. I mean, you approach everyone realizing that there's a common humanity that we all share. We all get sick. We all need doctors. We all die. 
We all have aspirations. We all have dreams. We all have talents and skills. Uh, and to say that we should divide ourselves into groups by things like pigmentation or the country we come from, or for that matter, even our, our sex, I mean, uh, our gender, if you will, uh, I think it denies the humanity and the individualism that make human beings so fascinating. And I've always believed that medicine is by far the most fascinating area of, of, of life that you can work in because people are so fascinating. Well, you know what, Dr. Bossart, you are fascinating. And I agree with you so much. Patience, and, and sometimes people think it sounds funny, but medicine can be fun. Even though patients are sick, there's some inner joy you get out of helping them get well and helping improve their lives. I don't care what color they are. And frankly, if you're a good doctor, I really doubt that the patient cares what color you are. I wish you great luck in this quest with the American College of Surgeons. And I'm sure this is happening in societies of the all the various specialties that they've all jumped on this bandwagon. And I'm glad you didn't and that you're just being you. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. I was so pleased to be invited. Mara. Thank you so much. And it's a well-guarded secret, but surgery is a lot of fun. Well, that's right. I know people don't, don't, don't think we're crazy when we say it's fun or big case is fun, but there's a certain thrill of victory, I guess you can, you can call it that, you know, it's like, I, I fought whatever, what is it? I fought the sheriff. Well, we fought disease and we won. And that's, that's a great feeling. So it's, it al it's also a great feeling to have all of you listening on America Out Loud Pulse. And you know, we are always a beat ahead. And remember, you can listen on the apps. You can listen on iHeartRadio the next morning after, after the shows. And the best thing, and I just think it's very it makes it very easy that the shows go direct to podcast in 24 hours and on all the usual suspects, Apple and Spotify, TuneIn, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeart. So bookmark americaoutloud.com forward slash pulse. So whether you agree with what you've heard or have other opinions, please share the show. So thanks for listening. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.